So this is the first week of a class we're calling uh, Christ and Culture. And when I named it that, I uh, wasn't thinking of this book that some of you might know by Reinhold Niebuhr called Christ and Culture. Uh, So don't read into any of that. (laughs) But uh, there are some things that he says that are helpful um, and relevant to my aims in this class. And Niebuhr outlines... Uh, three main attitudes historically that Christians have had toward cultural engagement or toward the world. And uh, they're Christ against culture, Christ of culture, and Christ above culture. Um, I forgot I was running my own slides. (laughs) There we go. So uh, those are the three, Christ against culture. That one, uh, he says, that's where... um, the church is set in opposition to culture. So loyalty to Christ demands wholesale rejection of culture. Uh, That's pretty obvious that's the wrong position we should take. Then there's the Christ of culture, and that's capitulation capitulation to culture. So the voice of Christ and the voice of culture becomes synonymous, and really Christ's voice disappears because ultimately he conforms to the voice of culture. Then there is Christ above culture, and that's where Jesus is Lord. He's the transformer of culture, and the church seeks to transform that which has been corrupted by sin. So Niebuhr first published this book in 1951. So here we are over 70 years later, and people are still interacting with his concepts, um, though not without criticism. Um, I think a better and more contemporary assessment to cultural engagement is found in a book that was published in 2010 by James Davison Hunter, and it's called To Change the World. And uh, it really is a great book. Um, By training, he's a sociologist, and he does a really good job of actually defining what do we mean by culture when we use that word. And for him, he says culture is this really complicated network of interconnected systems and ideas and institutions. And so how culture changes is also very complicated. And so Hunter gives us three insufficient models for how Christians have historically engaged cultural matters. And then he he gives us his proposed alternative way. And so the three insufficient ways are similar to uh, Niebuhr's model, um, But what he says, where his differs is that Niebuhr was addressing Christians of all time and all cultures. Um, Hunter is specifically talking about North American Christianity, cultural engagement. So these are the three models that Hunter gives. And keep in mind, uh, these three are all insufficient. So the first is defensive against. And so that's the view that he links to various types of political and theological conservatism. So adherence to that view kind of create this defensive enclave set against the world. The world is seen as a danger or a threat. And the main problem, as they see it, is secularization. So if only we could evangelize the world, we could take back our culture, and the church would regain its standing and position of power in society. So there's language of we must win the culture back. And so that means that the form 
that this type of cultural engagement takes as protests and boycotts and things like that. And so then the church becomes largely known by what it's against, not what it's for. So that's defensive against. Then there's relevance to, and that's more associated with the left, theological liberalism. Um, But it's also found with uh, evangelical circles who are more seeker-sensitive. So instead of prioritizing sound doctrine or right belief, they're concerned uh, with being connected to the most relevant or pressing issues of the day. So the church is chasing whatever culture is screaming about on Twitter. And the thought is, oh, if only the church will stay relevant, we toe the line to cultural orthodoxy. The problem is they can't keep up with culture. And so as Christians have sought this strategy, suddenly they're flabbergasted when they're vilified by culture. So this desire to become relevant um, suddenly becomes obsolete. They become uh, meaningless. And then there is purity from. And this view is more a form of withdrawal from culture altogether. So it's a culture in retreat. And uh, you can see various denominations, uh, various groups of people um, withdraw to their own community and have minimal engagement in, in the world. And so this also fosters this us versus them mentality. But ironically, it's not a form of cultural engagement. It's a form of disengagement from the culture. And so Hunter says all three of those paradigms are insufficient for cultural engagement. Uh, But that's not to deny that each of them does express some degree of a legitimate biblical concern. And so there's an element of truth in all of them. So in many, in the defensive against camp, maybe they've picked the right battles to fight, the right things to be concerned about, but they've gone about it in the wrong way. Uh, Other times, I think they've simply chosen the wrong battle. They've chosen to die on a hill that's ultimately trivial. Um, For the relevance too, we should ask, at what cost should we seek to be relevant to the world? At the cost of abandoning theological distinctives, sound doctrine. And then the uh, purity from is uh, you know, a form of disengagement, total withdrawal from society. So how do we appropriately navigate that tension, being in the world but not of it? And this is where Hunter gives his proposed strategy forward, and it's what he calls faithful presence within. That's language that we know here. So <clears throat> Hunter says, a theology of faithful presence is a theology of engagement in and with the world around us. The call of faithful presence gives priority to what is right in front of us. So that's very simple, but it's also very profound. Our task is faithfulness, faithful to where God has placed us in our sphere of influence. And so whether that's faithfulness in homemaking, changing diapers, faithfulness in practicing medicine, crunching numbers and spreadsheets, As Christians, we are resident aliens. We have this dual citizenship. We're U.S. citizens, but more importantly, we're citizens of God's kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. And so 
In the meantime, we live as cultural exiles longing for our heavenly home. Jeremiah 29.7, God instructs the exiled community to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. So the point is, be faithful in the midst of your exile. That's God's plan. As counterintuitive as it sounds. That's what we read last week in, in that end times passage. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own business, work with your hands as we instructed you. That's a call to faithfulness. So uh, I start this way because that's the uh, aim, that's my vision for this class over the next seven weeks. We're going to be talking about issues in culture, and we want to think Christianly about them, but we're not going to be defensive against, we're not going to seek to be relevant to, uh, nor are we going to seek purity from. Uh, those are all inadequate approaches. Our desire first is to think God's thoughts after him. That's what the task of theology is. To think Christianly about things. And then we look at what God has revealed to us in his word. And then secondly, we think about how do we appropriately engage those around us, our friends, neighbors, loved ones, in light of what God has revealed in scripture. So, in short, that's the goal, to love God and love people. Uh, that's what this class is about. Um, so I'm not, I'm not concerned that anyone's here to get uh, rhetorical ammunition to go out and win arguments, but uh, it's my ambition that all of us would grow in our faith as we think through these issues together. And uh, I'll be honest, when I don't know something. I don't pretend to be an answer man. Um, but what we discuss and what we talk about in these classes really are going to uh, serve as a foundation and a launching point uh, for further discussion, further uh, learning. So today, uh, the topic we're going to jump into is truth and this question of post-truth. Do we live in a post-truth world? Um, today's subject, all the other topics might seem a little more hands-on, a little more practical. When you start talking about truth, it can sound philosophical and pretty dense. And it's not my intention to be intentionally obscure. So I'm going to make this um, as simple as possible. Um, but I recognize it is dense when you're talking about truth, so bear with me. Um, but for Christians, we should think about what is truth? Why does it matter? Truth is something that's very important for Christians. Uh, certainly not only Christians, but either God raised Jesus from the dead or we're still in our sins and our faith is futile. So truth is essential to our faith and truth is essential for life. And historically, the university has been the institution that has been committed to pursuing the truth. I think it's kind of fun. You can uh, Wikipedia a list of university mottos, and you just scroll through, and many of them have light or truth in their motto. So Harvard says veritas, that's Latin for truth. Uh, Johns Hopkins quotes John 8.32, the truth will set you free. 
Uh, Yale has light and truth in their motto. Uh, But in recent years, we've heard lots of talk about post-truth, that we live in a post-truth era. I think it was the word of the year in 2016. So what does that mean, post-truth, that there's no such thing as truth? Well, not, not quite, but it means that there's a, a, a certain disregard for the truth. So here's how the Cambridge Dictionary defines post-truth. They say, relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on facts. So an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on facts. We'll get into this later on, but really that's what's called emotivism, where you make a moral judgment based on your personal preference or your feelings. So we'll talk about that more here in a little bit. So post-truth is not really a denial that there is the existence of something called truth, but rather it reveals a certain understanding of the truth, and it's, a, it's an understanding of the truth that is relative. And that's where you hear people say things like, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. And so you end up with Oprah saying things like, she spoke her truth, not she spoke the truth, she spoke her truth, or speak your truth. So what are we to make of that? Jesus didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through your truth. He was was speaking about objective reality. He was speaking about himself. He is the source of all truth and life. And so, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with the phrase, uh, speak your truth, if you mean speak about your experience. Uh, Because I think it's important to listen to other people who have different experiences, different perspectives than you. But it's a very different thing if you think that your subjective experience of something trumps objective reality of something. So the phrase, speak your truth, becomes problematic if we're making our subjective experience uh, foundational so that it supplants objective reality. So to quote Pontius Pilate, what is truth? A question sounds really abstract, but truth is very basic. Something is true if it corresponds to reality. Uh, So to help you understand this, I'm going to borrow a lot from Dallas Willard and what follows. And an example he uses is that uh, you, you could take the phrase, my shirt is blue, and you would say, is that statement true or false? Well, if it, it's true, if in fact my shirt is blue, you can verify it through observation. Or take the statement, you know, my truck has gas in the gas tank. Well, that statement is either true or false. It's either an accurate representation of reality or it's not. And you can verify the truth by going out to my truck grabbing the keys, starting the engine, and assuming that there's not any other issues with my truck, which is not a guarantee. But, you know, if I get in my truck and the gas is empty, then that would have been a false statement. It doesn't 
match reality. And not everything, that's the challenging thing, is not everything can be known through observable, verifiable means through the scientific method. Uh, but that doesn't mean that something is untrue. Uh, and we rely on rules of logic or, or other things like that. So when we have knowledge about what is true, uh, we're able to deal with reality appropriately. We're able to make good decisions, make proper judgments. You better hope your, your doctor believes and understands the truth. You better hope she's able to provide the proper prescription that corresponds to the reality of your illness. Or another analogy, if you like guns, Willard says, truth is like the accuracy sights on a gun. If it's accurately aligned, then it's true. It enables you to hit the intended target. And so because truth corresponds or matches reality, it doesn't care what you think about it. So truth is not the same thing as belief. So you can believe your truck has gas in the gas tank, but if, if the tank is empty, then no amount of believing is going to change the reality of the situation. So that's why post-truth, based on emotions or beliefs, is problematic, because beliefs do not always necessarily correspond to reality. And so truth in the classic Christian understanding is absolute. Uh, reality is not optional. And of course, um, truth doesn't mean uh, that type of truth, that it's absolute and it doesn't care about your feelings, that doesn't mean you have an excuse to be a jerk so in saying the truth doesn't care about your feelings, uh, I don't mean to say that you have a right to go be arrogant or disrespectful or unkind, but it's simply to say that you can't escape reality. And when people try to live apart from reality, uh, it's a pretty miserable existence. The results are miserable. And that's, in fact, what Adam and Eve did uh, when she took fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was reaching for a different way of knowing, a different way of determining truth, right and wrong, apart from the reality as God designed it to be. And those of us who have felt guilt and remorse over our sins, we know the misery of living your truth apart from God's truth. And unfortunately, um, I know that firsthand um, the hard way. So here's what I want to do at the time we have left. I want to answer two questions. How do we know the truth? And then what ways are truth in trouble today? So this first question, how do I know the truth? This is... Uh, uh, a subject called epistemology, and it just means the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? And when we think biblically about knowledge, we shouldn't think of something abstract, kind of floating in the air, um, as if knowledge is just this abstract object. 
biblically, knowledge is better described as a verb, as knowing. Uh, you can think of the old-fashioned sense of knowing, knowing one's spouse. So it's an action. Knowledge is personal. So what does that mean? So we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a personal being, so we can know him. Uh, We don't just collect data about him, but he reveals himself to us so that we can interact with him in personal relationship. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from relationship with him. And interestingly, if you read the creation account in Genesis, man is the first creature that God addresses directly, that he speaks to personally. So that suggests humans, that's in part what it means to be made in God's image. We are unique in all of creation, that God addresses us. So Genesis 1.28 says, and God blessed them, and God said to them. So this idea, as I said, uh, of personal knowing is communicated in the old biblical language of knowing one's spouse. So if you have knowledge of your wife, you don't just collect information about her, but with your whole being, you have intimate knowledge of her. So Francis Schaeffer was a philosopher, Christian philosopher, and he wrote a book about God called He is There and He is Not Silent. So God is a personal being, but he's not content with being silent. He has spoken to us. He's revealed to us who he is and what he's like. And the primary way he's done that is through his word, the Bible. So Christians call that special revelation. So general revelation uh, refers to God's communication of himself in some sense, whether that's through looking at creation and perceiving God's works or some internal moral sense of God's existence. So Romans 1 is a great example of this, where Paul says, uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So we can look at the world and, and come to some conclusion that there must be a designer. There, we can see God's invisible attributes, his fingerprints all over it. Or Romans 2, uh, Paul talks about the Gentiles who didn't have the law, the law of Moses, who by nature do what the law requires. So he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So, The problem is general revelation is not enough for salvation. So through general revelation, we can have some sense of knowledge of God's attributes. We can perceive his existence, have a sense of his justice or his moral law. However, without special revelation, we don't have any knowledge about salvation in Christ. And so special revelation in Scripture... Uh, has different modes. So it could refer to God's mighty acts, his miracles. You could think of the Exodus or the burning bush. Those are events where God reveals himself. 
where his presence is made known. Uh, Special revelation would also include dreams and visions or times where God uh, directly would speak um, to the fathers. Jesus' incarnation, where God took on human flesh, is also a form of special revelation where he revealed himself in human nature. So all of those are modes of special revelation. But the primary means of us knowing Christ today is special revelation through Scripture, and that's simply God's written account of his revelation. So a Christian way of knowing how do we know what we know comes to us through God's Word, through the Bible. And here, I think it's important to say that we believe, I believe, God's Word is inerrant. So that that just means it's totally true and trustworthy. And that doesn't mean, uh, some people argue, inerrancy is a a modern construct kind of imposed onto the text. But figures throughout church history have affirmed it. I think Jesus affirmed it. You can look at the way Jesus quotes Scripture, the way Jesus deals with Scripture. The Old Testament reveals that he had this high view of Scripture. Uh, I'm not going to read this. This is from... Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message, um, but this is their paragraph on what we believe about the scriptures and what we mean by it being the inspired, inerrant word of God. Uh, But I do want to highlight the last sentence there where it says, all scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So that last line tells us the Bible reveals to us not just what the truth is, but who the truth is. So John 14, 6, I've quoted many times already, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 1 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So truth is revealed in Christ. The New Testament word for truth uh, is aletheia, and it just means uh, that something is faithful and trustworthy. You can rely on it. So when the Bible describes Jesus, when he describes himself as the truth, he's saying, you can trust me. You can rely on me. He's not going to fail you. So, Let's move on to the second question. So that was how do we know what we know? And let's move on to uh, what are ways that truth is in trouble today? So perhaps the most pressing way that truth is in trouble is that uh, theological knowledge or religious knowledge is not considered to be knowledge. What counts as knowledge today? The Latin word for knowledge is scientia, where we get our word science. So that means that knowledge is science. So if we ask the question, is theology science? Uh, That would make us laugh today. We don't take it seriously. But historically, the answer would be yes, 
theology is a science. Uh, Aquinas said theology is queen of the sciences. And of course today, by science, we mean uh, the natural sciences, like physics, biology, geography, things like that. And so basically, we only consider something to be knowledge if it utilizes the scientific method. So I want to share a quote from a British philosopher named Roger Scruton, and he was writing and he was responding to some of the new atheists who say that uh, the material world is all that there is. Here's what he says. He says, wait a minute, science is not the only way to pursue knowledge. There is moral knowledge too, which is the province of practical reason. There is emotional knowledge, which is the province of art, literature, and music. And just possibly, there's transcendental knowledge which is the province of religion. Why privilege science just because it sets out to explain the world? Why not give weight to the disciplines that interpret the world and so help us to be at home in it? So I think that's a very significant uh, quote that reveals our contemporary biases favoring natural sciences or the scientific method. Those sciences can explain, uh, they can explain the what, but they can't explain the why. So if we want to know why we exist, these are the questions that are meaningful to us. Why is there something rather than nothing? If we're searching for meaning and purpose, then we can't look to natural sciences of cosmology uh, to explain that we must look to special revelation. And Dallas Willard, he's written a very helpful book um, called The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. And really, I think Scruton's quote uh, is a great summary of what Willard's book is about. Willard, um, that book is very difficult. But essentially, he's asking that question, how did religion as a source of knowledge become discredited? And so by disappearance of moral knowledge, Willard doesn't mean that uh, morality has actually disappeared. That's impossible. Rather, what he means is that it's just become discredited in society. So what do we do about that problem? How might we ever reclaim or recover moral knowledge? Well, uh, Willard never finished his book, so he died before he finished it. Uh, But we have some ideas about what he would have said and what his solution would have been. And one way to move forward is to start thinking about what it means to be a good person. And how do we know who a good person is? Well, Willard would say, we're not going to learn about that in the universities, at least not anymore, not right now. And Willard didn't say this outright because that's, that's more of an academic book. He wasn't writing for a Christian audience. But the way we learn about who a good person is is through God's word and his people in community. So the church is the place where this happens. You can think of the Sermon on the Mount where God 
uh, defines the good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's Jesus's vision of who's living the good life. So we can look to those passages, what God reveals to us in Scripture, to learn who a good person is. So let me mention a few other challenges to truth that we face today. Uh, The first is a philosophy of nihilism. And this is the philosophy of Nietzsche. So basically a simplistic uh, definition is it's the philosophy that says life is meaningless and of no value. So really, there's no such thing as truth. There's only power. Uh, so it doesn't take much to see how this worldview, this philosophy, leads to an impoverished existence. Because if all that there is is matter, and matter is ultimately meaningless, then we're stripped of anything that might cause us to be filled with wonder or delight. So there's, there's no meaning, only power. And for Nietzsche, that meant living for your own personal satisfaction, arriving at your own conception of the good life. So in our culture, people say things like, you do you, you know. That idea is commonplace today. We can be whoever we want to be. We believe in this idea of self-creation. And I think when when we see people living this way, I've talked to people one-on-one who are living that way, and I think the proper response is, how's how's that working out for you? Uh, Because that might appear to work for a little while. Um, They might say that things are fine, they're happy. Um, But in those discussions, I also couldn't help but notice that they have a sense of emptiness, that they're still searching for a sense of meaning. And unfortunately, their solutions are not going to satisfy them because we are made for a relationship with God. As Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So the other challenge to truth today is relativism. And I'm not going to go too much into detail with this one. Uh, I'll just address it at the level that you're you're likely to encounter it uh, when people say things like, well, that's true for you, but not for me. So relativism doesn't deny a certain kind of relative truth. So Wichita's a big city. Well, that's true relative to Cisco, Texas, where my grandma lives. Uh, But it's not true relative to Chicago or Dallas. Um, But what relativism does is it denies an objective moral or ethical standard, an objective measure of reality. And the problem with relativism is that it's not a coherent philosophical system. Nobody can actually live relativism consistently. So my literature professors at Wichita State across the street, they can say that there's no objective meaning to the text. They can make Jane Austen say whatever they want her to say, Uh, but that same professor is not a relativist when she's reading directions on her 
prescription pill bottle. You know, she better believe that that text has objective meaning. It doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. Or, you know, nobody's a relativist when you're signing a job contract. So Elizabeth and I, we've been reviewing job contracts that she's looking at. Both parties are going to expect certain things based on the text. And so when people say they're relativists, really they're only saying they're relativists in the realm of morality and ethics or religion uh, because it's convenient to their own autonomy. Or people might say things like, um, aren't all religions just different roads to the same God? Um, some of you know Rebecca McLaughlin's book, um, Confronting Christianity. She has a great chapter in that book about relativism. And I like what she says in response to that question. Um, aren't all religions just leading to the same God? She says, no, Jesus didn't give us that option. He didn't present himself to us as a possible path to God. He presented himself to us as God himself. And so to think that all religions are just the same actually discredits what those religions actually teach and believe about their own tradition. And so um, you're, not, you're not being honest with what you're actually dealing with when you say things like that. So relativism is an incoherent way to live. Uh, the last challenge to truth that I want to talk about today is what's called emotivism. And uh, this one, I think, is so prevalent in society. And this is basically relativism's evil twin brother. It's very similar to relativism, but basically it's the view that moral judgments um, are neither true nor false, but they're simply expressions of personal preference. Uh, so, like relativism, it's also a very subjective view of the truth. And here's a definition uh, by a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre. He says, emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments, and more specifically, all moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling, insofar as they are moral or evaluative in character. Now, McIntyre's very confusing and difficult to read because I think he's a bad writer. But, um, but basically what he's saying is, you know, you make a judgment like murder is wrong. Uh, really, he's saying what that person is um, suggesting is they're just saying, I personally disapprove of murder. That's what emotivism is. And so that might sound absurd with something like murder that there's still this common uh, moral consensus on and objection to, uh, but that language is prevalent in our uh, social discourse on sexual ethics today. So there's nothing objectively wrong with same-sex marriage, they say. It just reflects personal preference. It just feels right. And so if there's no common overarching framework for morality, so the Bible in our case, then any moral statement just becomes a statement of personal preference, and there's no basis with which you can disagree with that person. And so if somebody disagrees with you, they can't really tell you why your view is wrong, so then they just resort to 
ad hominem attacks, and they name call, they label you as a bigot, or they diagnose you with some social phobia, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, the list goes on and on. So, how do we respond to these challenges to truth? Well, certainly, don't do it on social media. <laughs> That's a disastrous idea. But I think um, that these emotional responses are best dealt with in the context of relationship. So I think people's intellectual concerns are legitimate. Um, and of course, the concern for things like absolute truth uh, is fundamental. Uh, but in my experience, people are not really wrestling with intellectual questions as much as they are emotional concerns. Um, so listen to 2 Peter 1.3 and be encouraged. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God has equipped us with what we need to be able to confront these challenges. God has created us for such a time as this. And God has promised us his presence. He will be with us to the end of the age. So yes, uh, culture is a mess right now. Why would it not be if we assume human sinfulness and depravity? Uh, but I think for us as Christians, as we live faithfully in Christian community, as we abide in Christ, and as we ourselves are characterized by love and truth, then the truth becomes attractive. We bring out the flavor of truth. That's what being salt and light means. People are drawn to it. We are to bring out the flavor and the richness of life in Christ. We are to be people of the truth. We are to live in the truth. And I think that as we're faithful to do that in our sphere of influence, I think that's where you begin to see real uh, change and transformation. 